Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This week we hear the second part of our epistle lesson which began last week where Paul was speaking on the uses of the law and where the law applies in the life of the Christian. Last week he focused on the first two uses of the law and this week we delve into that third use, the guide. I thought it would be good for us to just pause for a moment and consider those three uses and in general how they apply to people of God's creation. As we consider that first use, the use of, as the curb, that which is that because of God's law, the fact that it exists at all, curbs sin. It manifests itself in two ways in creation. One is what we would call the natural law, that there is a law, an order built into creation itself which, present, which prevents lawlessness. Of course, this is always to some extent, because man in his sinfulness is always creative in ways to accomplish what he sinfully desires. But it's such things as how if you abuse your body, it will wear down. If you're out to all, all hours of the night, imbibing in things which you shouldn't, the next morning is usually one where you pay the consequences. It's such things as the fact that we can't simply defy nature. You can't walk off a cliff and expect that you can fly like the birds. There's also what would be called positive law, that is laws imposed by the governments of the world. As Paul told the Romans, the governor does not hold the sword in vain. So the very presence of governments who enforce laws, who arrest and persecute or prosecute the criminals, this also limits evil because of the fear of the consequences of our actions. This first use is one which is for all people of all times and cannot be ignored. You most certainly cannot ignore the laws of creation. If you get angry and you are so angry you punch the wall in that anger, you will find your wrist is bruised and you will find that it hurts. And, at least as society should be, the laws of the land are there which are regardless of who you are. Which brings us then to the second use. The second use of the law is the one which the Lutheran fathers have always said is the most prominent use. This is the mirror, the one that reflects the law back to you to show you that you are a sinner. It is that conscience which screams out to you when you do that which is against God's desire. It is the use of the law that says, you must be, be perfect as my Father is perfect in heaven, as our Lord Jesus says to us. And yet, when as we hear that, our first response ends up being, Lord, have mercy, for I am a sinful man. Like the first use of the law, this is for all people. The Lord has written this law upon our hearts, and that law pricks. Yet unlike the first use of the law, the second use can and often is ignored. We can dull our conscience. We can ignore that voice which says to us, this is wrong. And indeed, one of the dangers of repeatedly engaging in sin, engaging in those things which God said, thou shalt not, is that it does dull the conscience. 
The more times we say, I'm going to do what I want, regardless of what God says is good for me, the less that voice of our conscience speaks out, until it is sharpened again by the word of God, that two-edged sword which chastens and indeed heals. This is why Paul addresses those first two earlier in the letter. If you remember, it was actually in Galatians chapter 3. After, though, he, d- he shares with the, with the Galatians about the wonders of Christ's love, when he proclaims to them who our Lord is, the one who has died for your sins, the one who get, became a curse for you, the one in whom you are baptized unto new life, he raises the third use. For this third use of the law, the law as the guide, is specifically for God's people. It is the one that answers the question, I've been saved, now what? So let us delve into the text of Paul today and see how this indeed plays out in our lives. What is the third use of the law? And what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Paul begins by addressing the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. What are these two? And how are they warring against each other? When we were created in the garden, God proclaimed, and Moses enlightened further, and our Lord indeed confirmed, that the commands of God can be summed up into, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The desire of the Spirit-filled man is for these two commandments. Love of God, despite how it sounds to be an action on our part, is actually a little counterintuitive. Because to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is, as Luther said, that we fear, love, and trust him above all things. Or, to put it simply, to wait upon the Lord for his salvation and his gifts. The great irony of that first commandment is that the way we love the Lord our God is by doing nothing and receiving everything from him. Because to trust God is to trust that he indeed gives us our daily bread, that he forgives us our sins, that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and that his word is the bread of life that gives unto us salvation itself. Compare this to the desire of the flesh doesn't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It loves you with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so you become your own God. I become my own God. Which means we don't need God to save us because we can save ourselves, or so we think. I can do what's required. I am a good person. I am the one who does what is needful. That's the desire of my flesh. I want the credit. I want the glory. I, I, I. Likewise, the second commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. This one is not counterintuitive. It's exactly what it sounds. It is what our Lord did for us, which is to give our entire selves for those in need, to lay down our life for those who are not living and who need life. Yet again, the desire of the flesh is not about what is best for my neighbor, but what's best for me. Not what brings him comfort and joy, but what brings me pleasure and happiness. 
What makes you happy? There's a question that, I, that rings in today's society, in today's world. Not what is best for those who are around you, but what makes you happy? If you're not happy, then change it, regardless of how it affects your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your country. And so it is the desires of the spirit. The new man wars with the desire of the flesh, the old man. One of the things, though, that's important to understand about Paul's words is that the desires of the flesh are not the same thing as the works of the flesh. For the works of the flesh are what flow from those desires. The works of the flesh are what happens because we make ourselves our own God and because we care about ourselves more than anyone else. And it's interesting that Paul uses the words works here. As we will see, it contrasted to the fruits of the Spirit. You see, the works are the flesh are what results because the way and desires of the flesh are empty. God created us to love him and love others. When in the fall we lost that image, when we lost that first love, and we turn that love inward, the truth is it's no longer love. You can't love yourself because love means there's someone, something else, something outside of you. And so when we try to turn that inward, it becomes unmet. And so what do we do? We find alternatives, alternatives which appear to make up that absence, but at the end do not. That's where this list of works come from. Sexual immorality, we try to find love in all the wrong places. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Whether it could be sports or whether it could be activities, whether it be whatever it is, the good and gracious gifts of God become that which we treasure above all things. I guess it might be appropriate to point out I realize that the Vikings and Packers are playing at noon, so you don't have to worry. We won't make that a God conflicting with today's service. But yet, how often does that happen? We can make arrangements to do whatever we want, and yet somehow, God becomes last on the list. And yet, when Paul says these are works, he places the blame squarely on your shoulders. When we engage in these things, it's not an excuse that the devil made me do it. It's not an excuse that said, well, I couldn't do it, I couldn't resist. It's your fault. It is your actions. It is you who is responsible. But there is another irony here. Because the more we try to save ourselves, the more we fight those temptations, the more we try to resist, the more we say, I can do it on my own. The farther and faster we fall into that pit of sin, and the worse it becomes. Here again, it's important for me to point a truth out, because this is critical to understand. We live in this nation, you've heard about the separation of church and state. But that separation, 
is like a chain-link fence compared to the separation that we must and should and indeed do hold between justification and sanctification. Because right now, as I share with you, that the more you resist, the more you try to save yourself, the more you fall into sin. Know that we are talking about justification, how we are made right with God. Lest you confuse it with me saying, go and do what you want because it doesn't matter. That's in the realm of sanctification. But when we're talking about how we're made right with God, there is only one answer. We can't. It is God who does it. And that salvation comes by walking by the Spirit. An old seminary prof of mine always pointed out, and I've told you this before, when talking theology, it's not the big words that cause the problems, like justification and sanctification. Those can be defined in simple ways, and people can understand them. It's those little words. And notice here, Paul does not say walk in the Spirit, but by the Spirit. And why is that critical? It's the, it's the difference between who is the actor. When you walk in the Spirit, that's you seeking out the Spirit. But when you walk by the Spirit, we are now passive. It is the Spirit who brings us along. Because we dare not change the gospel into a new law. Walking by the Spirit is not a matter of saying, well, I am keeping the commandments. Unlike those who are walking in the flesh and engaging in all these sinful acts, I'm not doing it. I'm being Spirit-led. There is then no difference there. You, are, you have just made God's promises into a new law. The Spirit is the actor. He brings us along by walking in the Spirit. What does that mean? It's what, our, what the author is talking about, what Solomon is talking about in Proverbs. Hear my son and accept my words. I have taught you the way of wisdom. Walk in those steps. I know this isn't quite passive, but in the big picture it is. To walk in the Spirit is doing what we are doing this morning. You're sitting here. You're hearing God's Word. The Word is coming into your hearts, and the Spirit is growing faith in you. And when the Spirit does that, He provides us what we need. He quenches those desires. He quickens in you faith. And he implants in you a sharpened conscience to recognize what is wrong. And above all, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He brings to you the forgiveness and salvation our Lord has purchased and won for you from the cross of Calvary. He washes you in the blood of Christ. He feeds you with the bread of life. We know these words in Scripture, but they're not simply just pictures. God's Word is your food. It is what nourishes the new man, just as, and in many ways, more than that bread you will eat this afternoon nourishes your physical body. And here, then, as we are strengthened by the Spirit, something amazing happens. No more works. They're not works of the spirits. They're fruits of the spirits. And in the same way that the tree does not decide to bear apples or oranges according to its kind, we who are walking by the Spirit, we who are, who are overshadowed by that Spirit, have fruits grow in our lives. The peace 
of the confidence and assurance of our forgiveness, the joy of serving others, of willingly going to them in their time of need, the contentment that the Lord has provided what we need in our lives, a gentleness, knowing that no matter how people react to us, the Lord is the one who deals with us, and he's given us a place in his kingdom, and we are content to wait, of self-control, to know that we do not need to satisfy our sinful desires because the Lord will provide abundantly. These desires, these fruits, spring from the Spirit of God. Let us indeed dwell here this day and gather in his presence now and always so that the Lord himself will bestow upon you love and mercy, so that his law will bloom forth as a guide, even as it shows us our sinfulness and keeps us in the way of peace now and always by his mercy and love. Amen. We rise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.